Two weeks ago, we were studying one of the prayers of a man of great faith, a man known as Daniel. And as we studied that prayer, I suggested that it offered us two invaluable lessons. First of all, anybody who has been given accurate insight into who God is, what God has said and is saying, and what God is up to in the world, well, that person has received a priceless gift. Much better than a sweater that doesn't fit in a color that you don't like or, God forbid, a Chia Pet. <laughs> but it's a priceless gift because those who are equipped with that insight are able to navigate all of the questions and challenges and uncertainties of life with a stubborn peace, a stubborn joy, and stubborn confidence. The second thing we learn from Daniel's prayer is that the most spiritually blessed, emotionally secure people in the world are those who intentionally make their focus the wisdom and power of God. No matter what is unfolding around them, no matter the noise that clamors for their attention. Well, today I want to point out how the incarnation of Messiah Jesus underscored those valuable lessons that we learned from Daniel. The incarnation offers us accurate insight into who God is, what God has said and is saying, and what God is up to in the world. And the incarnation of Christ put God's wisdom and power on full display center stage. Now, to prepare the way for our study, I want to read a text that you'll barely hear this time of year, but it's one that should be associated with Christmas. It comes from the 40th Psalm, the fifth verse. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done, and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Today, for my title, I borrowed from a familiar Christmas carol. We're going to make our focus the wonders of his love. Let's pray together. Father, the wonders that you have performed and are performing are too numerous to count and far too numerous for us to consider in these next few moments. But in considering a few of them, I pray that you would give us a deeper appreciation for all of them. Today, as I have the privilege of teaching your word, give me that equipping from your spirit, apart from which I could never carry out this commission. And today, as we together listen for your voice, by your spirit, open our understanding. Give us eyes to see and faith to believe and to obey. As always, we pray these things in the name of the one who is our hope, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Messiah. And we pray them ultimately for his honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. And as we listen for God's word to our hearts through his word, may the Lord be with you. I'm sure you've noticed that our culture is obsessed with rating things. We fixate on Facebook and Instagram likes. 
We rate everything from apps to Uber drivers, from chiropractors to even churches. And that obsession says something about us, and I suspect it's not entirely positive. But that's a topic for another day. I mention that obsession simply to point out that our obsession with rating things has led to us rating Christmas carols. I don't know why anybody would want to rate Christmas carols. It sort of defeats the whole purpose, but we rate everything. So I looked at some of the ratings this week, and it should come as no surprise, given the subjective nature of such ratings, every top ten differed from the next. But it wouldn't surprise you, I'm sure, to learn that there was one carol that always appeared in the top ten. Isaac Watts' classic, Joy to the World, The Lord is Come. But what likely will surprise you is the fact that that song is rated in the wrong category. Because Watt based that hymn on Psalm 98, and he intended it as a hymn anticipating Jesus' triumphant return, his second coming, not his quiet stepping into the world at his first coming. So when Watt writes about the nations proving or acknowledging the wonders of God's love, he wasn't writing with the manger in mind. Now, I'm not here to suggest we drop joy to the world from our Christmas repertoire. My last name is Dilliman, not Scrooge. <laughs> Watts' hymn may be an accidental Christmas carol, but it is nonetheless a totally appropriate Christmas carol because Jesus' arrival in human flesh clearly declared the wonders of God's love and clearly stimulated joy in those who follow him. Because God's wisdom and power are revealed in everything, everything he does, and everything he does contributes to our joy when it's properly understood. And those last four words are vitally important. Now, strange as it may sound at first, a complete understanding of what God is doing and therefore a proper understanding of what God is doing, requires more, something more, than a knowledge of the biblical narrative. It also requires a certain knowledge of science, especially in the area of genetics and human reproduction. Now, I'm fully aware that secular culture has largely dethroned God as the highest authority in the universe and the only infallible source of truth. I'm aware that in our secular culture we have replaced God with an overreaching science that often preaches its imaginary superiority with all the zeal of an evangelist. But those abuses don't change the simple fact that science and scripture are not natural enemies. Science is one of God's good gifts. Science helps us to understand how the world functions 
And what did Paul say in the opening lines of his letter to the believers in Rome? He said, the created realm, which is the focus of the scientific discipline, the creative realm shouts to the existence of God and his eternal nature. So science and scripture aren't enemies. Science is one of God's good gifts. It's only when science is pimped by unbelief, when it's made to work the streets on behalf of human arrogance and human rebellion, that its good is prostituted and its findings are compromised. Used properly, Science affirms scripture. It encourages faith by shedding additional light on what? On God's genius. And that genius was exhibited in God's establishing what we commonly refer to as the laws of nature. I would prefer that they be called the laws of God because he established them. And when he established them, some of them were meant to have an essential indispensable connection to God's mission of restoring his fallen creation and restoring fallen humanity through the birth, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So you could say when united with faith, the understanding gained by science increases the wonder of Jesus' birth without decreasing the miracle. Let's consider some examples. Long before science came to understand the laws of genetics, God created Eve out of Adam in order to make Jesus' mission possible. You see, the fall of Adam and Eve didn't take God by surprise. Something God has never said. Ooh, didn't see that coming. (laughs) God is never surprised. And the fall didn't take him by surprise. He anticipated that they would sin. He anticipated the loss that they incurred. He anticipated the mess that they unleashed. That's why scripture refers to Jesus as the lamb slain when? Before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It means that the cross was planned before humanity's crisis and it influenced humanity's creation. When God created man, he already had the cross in mind. Now, when God says he's giving us something, he means he's giving it to us entirely. So when God gave man dominion and life, and man lost it through sin and unbelief and rebellion, God couldn't step in and forcibly intervene and restore life and dominion to humanity. Because if he had done that, it would have indicated he never truly gave those things to man. To help explain, crude example, if when my son was a teenager, I would have given him the keys to an automobile and said, son, this is yours. And then two weeks later, when he got a speeding ticket, said, I'm taking it back, it would have meant I never really gave it to him. Because if I really gave it to him, I can't take it back. Well, when God said, I am giving you dominion, he meant it. So when man lost dominion, God couldn't step in and take it back. A man lost life and dominion, 
And so a man would have to regain life and dominion. A sinless man who would have to die voluntarily. And that couldn't happen until two essential realities were in place. First, for Jesus to be our substitute, there could only be one race of humanity. Jesus could not die as the substitute for all the human race unless there was just one human race. And that's why Eve was created out of Adam. If she had been a standalone creation like Adam, called into existence out of the dust of the ground like Adam, there quickly would have been multiple races of humanity. And the death of one for all would have been impossible. And Eve and her descendants would have been outside the possibility of redemption and salvation. That's why the New Testament in Acts 17 echoes Genesis by saying, we all, every one of us, derive our existence from one man. Notice, not one couple, not one man and woman, but one man. So that account of Eve being taken out of Adam's side, before we understood things like cloning, that account where he says, you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, that isn't a myth, that isn't a parable, that isn't an allegory, that's reality, and the science of genetics helps us understand why it had to be done that way. Second, the Messiah had to be free from the curse of death. Because if he was under the same sentence of death like all of us, then his death couldn't be a substitute for ours. It would simply be his own inevitable end. He had to be immortal. Knowing that, God created Adam and Eve with what is called conditional immortality. Conditional immortality doesn't mean that something can't die. It means it doesn't have to die. Death doesn't originate within the entity. It only occurs as the result of something happening to that entity. Now, science has revealed something Moses couldn't have known when under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote the narrative of creation. We now know that human protoplasm is not intrinsically subject to death. Putting it simply, physical death is not the inevitable consequence of being alive. That's why Scripture says it is appointed unto man to die, not it is inevitable that men should die. It's appointed that we all die because of sin, but it was not inevitable because of creation. You see, we now know that our bodies, like many organisms, are constantly replenishing and refreshing themselves through the death of cells and the formation of new cells to replace them. In my reading, I've come to the understanding that over a period of approximately seven years, interestingly enough, the biblical number of perfection when God is at work, over a period of seven years, every cell in your body will have died and been replaced by a new one, which begs the question, why do we get old? And begs the question, why do we die? Why is something designed to constantly renew itself, why does it die? You see, Scripture doesn't teach that death is natural. It teaches that death is entirely unnatural. God told Adam and Eve they would only die if they sinned. Otherwise, they'd still be here. 
and I'd be unemployed. <laughs> so when Adam sinned, not only did something happen in his body chemistry that changed it and led to his death approximately 900 years later, but that chemical change was passed to all of his descendants, and that's everybody in the room. Because remember, we all hail from one man. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15.22 in the New Testament says, In Adam all die. Notice, in Adam, not in Eve. Whatever happened to Eve's body when she sinned resulted in her death. But the chemical change that passes death on genetically wasn't passed on by Eve to her descendants or to all women. Now, the male sperm necessary for conception obviously makes death inevitable for women as well as men. But women aren't the carriers of death. Adam's descendants, men, are the carriers of death. That reality, that important reality, set the stage for the virgin birth. Scripture declares that Jesus is the second Adam. He came to reverse the curse that the first Adam brought upon us. To accomplish that, he had to have a body uncorrupted by the death principle. Death for him had to be an impossibility. And he could have never, never been incorruptible, immortal, if he had been the product of human sperm, if he had been Joseph or any other man's son in the natural manner of procreation. That's why scripture says God prepared an uncorrupted body for Jesus. God prepared. And he set the stage for its arrival by the manner in which he ordered genetics and human conception. See, conception results in a new person, brand new person entering the world. But Jesus wasn't brand new. He existed before the world was formed. Truth is, he formed it. He had always been in existence. He was without beginning and without end. But he was an entirely spirit being without a physical body, just like the Father and the Holy Spirit. So God had to prepare a body for him. And in fulfillment of the angel's announcement, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and planted a unique, never-seen-before seed in her womb in an action that the Spirit described as the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And that seed was uncorrupted by mortality. And Jesus' always existing Spirit inhabited that physical frame. And that's why the child that was born was called the Son of God. Those who advocate various cults and false religions love to take that term, son of God, and say, see, it proves Jesus had a beginning, and if he had a beginning, he can't be God, and you Christians are wrong to worship him. No, Jesus always existed, always. Remember, he said, before Abraham existed, I am. He always existed as a spirit being. But there was a day when he took on human flesh so that he could fulfill the role of an obedient son of God. It was not the beginning of his existence. It's the day he laid aside his privilege for our benefit. 
And contrary to some ridiculous assertions in our politically polarized culture, what happened to Mary was not sexual assault. It was a spiritual privilege that was afforded only one woman in all of human history. And Mary came to understand that, and Mary came to joyfully celebrate that. There was no Me Too movement in Mary's day, and I'm not demeaning that movement. It's an important thing for a society to become conscience, conscious of hideous evil that has existed within its ranks that has been unacknowledged. But there was no Me Too movement in Mary's day. But if there had been one, the only Me Too movement would have been when she hooked up with Elizabeth and Elizabeth said, I'm miraculously pregnant, and Mary would have said, Me Too. <laughs> now, as a result of God's ingenious plan and Jesus' already sinless nature, death had no claim on Jesus. So he was perfectly positioned to take our place, to reverse the curse, to offer his life as a substitute for ours, to take our punishment on the cross, to rise from the dead and offer us restoration to life as it was meant to be, life eternal. So when scripture and science joined their voices as friends, they testify the creation, the virgin birth, and the incarnation are not myths. To suggest that they are myths is to myth the point of them entirely. <laughs> the only people who make those suggestions are people whose God is too small or whose science is too big. Watt's accidental Christmas carol got it right. Heaven and nature do sing, but they sing in perfect harmony. And together, as friends, they declare that the incarnation was the culmination of God's incredible love expressed in his incredible genius. The intricate details of how God planned all of this makes the notion of mindless, chance-based evolution totally illogical, it is nothing more than a working hypothesis for atheism based on false narrative. What God did in the incarnation makes the theory that we are descended from lower life forms laughable. What God did in the incarnation makes the notion that we are better off on our own entirely irrational. In the face of the challenges of life in a fallen creation and our own sinfulness, we desperately, each of us, need God's wisdom and God's power, the wisdom and power that planned all of this unleashed in our lives. We need the wonders of his love applied to our now epidemic loneliness, insecurities, and fears. We need his genius applied to our opioid crisis, injustices, hatreds, divisions, and the messes that we have made. And perhaps the greatest wonder of God's love is that he is eager to do that for every man and woman on the face of the earth 
no matter what they've said about him, no matter what they've thought about him, no matter what they have believed, no matter what they have done, he is eager to restore every man and every woman if they simply ask. That's the only criteria you just have to ask. Because as I've shared with you many times, nobody needs a PFA where God is concerned. He knocks. If you open, he steps in gladly. If you don't, he walks away. Now, all that begs the really important question, have you asked? All of us start outside of relationship with God because of the mess we inherited. All of us need forgiveness. All of us need restoration. And only God can do what we need. He has gone to incredible lengths to make it possible. And all we have to do is say, do it in me. So I want to give you opportunity to do that because the opportunity for people to be restored is why Jesus came. So for the next few moments, whatever works best for you when you pray, eyes closed, closed eyes open, it doesn't matter. But whatever works for you, if you're already a follower of Jesus, pray for people in this room that haven't yet come to that point. Pray that this will be the day when they'll open their heart to Jesus. And if you've never ask Christ to forgive your sin, restore you to what you were meant to be and become your Savior. But you feel like you're ready and want to do that now. In the quietness of your heart where God hears your every thought, just quietly express several things to God in your own words. First of all, confess that you have sinned by living your life without him. Second, confess your inability to change and save yourself. Third, confess Jesus as Lord and affirm your belief in his resurrection. And then simply ask him to save you, change you, forgive you, and grant you what he called the new birth. Commit yourself to following him and to confessing him before others. And then thank him for hearing your prayer and entering your life. His word says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved and God will not violate his word ever when he says he's giving something he means it father I pray for any man woman young person who today invited Jesus to enter into their life it is the wisest and most important thing we can do because to have Jesus is to have life and to not have Jesus is to forfeit life I pray that your spirit would seal to their heart and mind the decision that they have made and the reality of your promises. I pray that you would help them to get rooted and grounded in faith and become contagious carriers of the good news. And I pray that no weapon formed against them would prosper, that they would grow in grace and in their knowledge of you and discover what you meant when you said, I came that you might have abundant life. 
Father, we marvel at your genius, but we really marvel at your love. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. A final word and then a brief announcement. From our side of things, we tend to refer to events like the virgin birth and the resurrection as miracles. That's the phrase that we attach to those events. And when we're talking about miracles, we're generally suggesting something that at best bypasses the laws of nature or at worst violates and contradicts the laws of nature. But I don't believe God sees these miracles that way. I believe when God created his laws of existence, the laws of nature, he allowed us to discover some aspects of their workings, but there are others that he kept entirely for himself. And why would he not let us understand everything? Two reasons. First of all, because there were some applications of his laws that only needed to unfold one time in all of history like the virgin birth and the resurrection. Those events don't ever need to be repeated. But secondly, I'm convinced that there are some things God doesn't allow us to discover by research because he prefers that we would accept them and embrace them by faith. Because to follow God is to always follow in faith. And God won't eliminate that faith element. I like what C.S. Lewis said in regard to what we call miracles. He said, if we, if we fully understood God's laws, we would know they really aren't exceptions or bypasses. They're consistent. But he said, science just writes the notes in the margin of the poem. Scripture gives us the poem. Now, the announcement that I referred to as our treasurer and Pastor Blaine said last weekend, and if you've attended hearing late the time, you know, December is so, so critical to this ministry. We normally take in three months of average giving in the one month of December. So far this December, we're, we're lagging behind where we normally are. Now, that begged the question, have, have some folks taken their normal giving and put it into the next-gen campaign? You haven't. Kudos to you. We checked. Your regular giving has continued at regular levels. You are giving over and above just as we ask you. And that's one, just one more example of the maturity of this congregation. But we have a theory. We have a theory that those who tend to give some large gifts at the end of the year may have given those large gifts when we said, try to front load your giving to the campaign so that we have initial funds to work from because you did that, over a million has already come in, but we're not seeing some of those larger gifts now at the end of the year. Well, what are we gonna do about that? Not gonna buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> gotta ask you to do two things. One, pray. And I wanna remind you, listening to an announcement calling you to prayer is not the same thing as actually praying, okay? So I'm asking you to actually pray, to talk to Jesus about this. And secondly, I'm asking you to consider doing something extra. I never ask you to do what Karen and I aren't willing to do. So yesterday I went online and gave a large additional gift to our regular monthly giving. 
but just ask God what he would have you to do. And remember this, you may not be in a position to give a $50,000 stock gift at the end of the year. But just like many tiny snowflakes make an avalanche, many small acts of sacrifice and obedience create a moving of God in a congregation that enables us to do beyond what we would have anticipated. So don't look at the size of your gift, but do something extra and ask God to use that to add momentum to the miracle that we need. And then let's just simply trust God. He's provided for us for 124 years. He hasn't moved to Florida. We're confident he's got to provide for us once again. And thank you for being a part of it. God bless you.